BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am absolutely thrilled to have a different and exciting show for you today. We are going to take a little bit of a detour from talking about clinical anesthesia and critical care and talk about something else that I think is going to be really fascinating. So I'm really pleased to have with me today, Dr. Tammy Uliano. And uh, Dr. Uliano, I'm, I'm realizing I should have asked you beforehand, but am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You are. That's perfect. All right. Yes. Perfect. So I have with me Tammy Uliano, who is a professor of anesthesiology and of obstetrics and gynecology. She's an obstetric, uh, obstetric anesthesiologist at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And we actually are not going to talk about anesthesiology or obstetric anesthesiology today, though I'm sure she has fascinating things to say on that topic. And we might have her back to discuss that. But we're actually going to talk about something else, which is that Dr. Uliano is also a published author. She, in March published a novel called Fatal Intent, and we're going to talk about that, how she got into the process of writing fiction, what it took to get a manuscript published in into an actual published novel, and we're also then going to branch out a little bit and talk about how anesthesiologists are portrayed in popular fiction in general. So, Tammy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with just a little bit about you. Tell me about your background. How'd you get into anesthesiology in general? How'd you decide on obstetric anesthesiology? And then uh, we'll go from there to how you got into writing. So I'm a University of Florida lifer from undergrad all the way through and uh, was going to be an engineer and then decided I wanted to do medical research. And then somebody told me, oh, to do that, you need to get a doctor. You need to be an MD. And I said, okay, that's what I'll do then. So so sort of a circuitous route, um, went to medical school, was not a particularly um, enthusiastic student at the time, um, tried to drop out a couple of times, actually. And the second time I went to drop out, I met uh, Dave Paulus, who was an anesthesiologist, and he introduced me to Mike Good, who was working on the first anesthesia simulator. So it sort of combined my engineering interest and medical interest and physiology. And so I started spending all my time when I should have been studying, probably, um, working on the simulator. And that kept me in medical school and convinced me to go into anesthesia. And uh, 
I really enjoyed that project and continued teaching with it. That was my early career focus was figuring out how to teach with full-scale patient simulators and uh, running the medical student clerkship. And then uh, J.S. Gravenstein, who some people might remember, he was the first person to start the anesthesia program at University of Florida. He and I collaborated to write um, Essential Anesthesia from Science to Practice, which is an introductory anesthesia text really geared toward very beginning residents and medical students. And when we finished writing that, he said, let's do something else. And so he suggested we start a fiction book, which we did. Unfortunately, he fell ill and passed away, but Mm. I had the bug then. So I started trying to write a different one and pretty quickly realized I had no idea what I was doing, that just because I could write a medical textbook and, and research papers didn't mean that I knew anything about writing fiction. So then I started a, a different journey of learning into, into how to do that. So I was a residency program director at the time, and that kind of was getting in the way of my new passion. So I resigned that and other administrative duties, and my kids are all graduated. And so I went part-time, and this is what I do on my, on my non-medical days. Wow, that is f- absolutely fascinating. So uh, so let's let me ask you, did you have any background in writing in in college in in uh, well I guess it would be college did you ever take a I don't know a writing seminar or, or do anything like that I never did I uh, recently found some stories I'd written when I was six or seven years old but I don't think that counts um, all right well maybe it's in there somewhere right <laughs> were they I any was good? Always, uh, no <laughs> <laughs> I was always an avid reader. And I often, when I would read, would think, oh, that would be fun to write a mystery. You know, the the, um, Dan Brown sort of, could you come up with clues for people to try to follow? Um, But I had never really had any training and never sat down and started writing something until, until this. Okay, so this what must have been a big undertaking, and you mentioned that you had collaborated first, at least on an idea, with um, a, a prior colleague. So... Did he have training that kind of, you know, did you learn from him or did were the two of you learning together? He wrote uh, stories for his grandkids and they were okay. beautiful stories and he would illustrate them and they were amazing. I don't think he had any formal training. He was German by birth and English was a second language, but he wrote just beautiful, but they were, you know, kid stories. Um, and he was also widely read. Um, so I don't think either of us really knew what we were getting into. Sure. Um, but but we didn't get very far. We mostly played with the plot for a few months. And how did that collaboration come about? Did did he approach you and say, hey, let's write a novel or or vice versa? Or how did that happen? No, it was him. Right as we finished the first book, he said, gosh, this was fun. Let's let's do something else together. And we talked about writing a, a book for patients about what to expect from anesthesia. But I looked in Google and there were several already in existence. And he said, well, then let's write something nobody else can write. And Meaning when you write fiction, any fiction you write is something no one else can write because it's coming out of your creativity. Um, And we were going to focus on the simulator because he was part of that project as well, which it was it was very fun. Someday I'll go back to that story. Yeah, that sounds fascinating and um, and a fun collaboration. So. Unfortunately, he passed away, as you said, and you kind of had this idea in your head, though, that this was something that was exciting for you. And so. How did you then, um, you know, did you go through a process of 
brainstorming different ideas? Did you already have an idea in your head that that had been germinating through the process of, you know, kind of thinking about it and talking to him? Take us through that process of of how you developed an idea that later became your novel. And was it one of many or was there this this one kernel you had right from the beginning? This particular book was really the only idea I had at the time, which is a little bit troubling. Um, but yeah, so the idea was um, from childhood, I had been sort of fascinated, oddly, with um, end of life decisions. When I was in grade school was when Karen Ann Quinlan, which is before your time, but it was a woman who was uh, brain dead and her husband and her parents disagreed on whether to continue her tube feeds. Actually, I may be mixing her up with the other one. Um, but anyway, it was an end of life decision. And should you turn things off? Actually, this was in New Jersey and the family wanted to disconnect her and the state of New Jersey said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And she lived for many years on tube feeds. And it was just a, a horrible situation. And um, and as a 10, 10 year old, I was part of a debate about what we should do. And I have no idea what I said at the time, but um, but it sort of stimulated a, a curiosity in me about the fact that there is, you know, when we put our dog down, we just give him a little injection and he's peacefully goes to sleep. And, and that's not exactly how it works with people. And so um, during medical school residency, you know, we all face these things in the ICU and watch the families. And so I just had a, an interest in not an answer for what it ought to be, but an interest in the different sides of it. And so I knew I wanted to write a story that brought those issues up um, without choosing a side. And so, so that's where it started. And of course I made my character somebody that I could relate to. So she's an anesthesiologist and um, I knew enough about the operating room to make it a possibility to, to uh, design my mercy killer through there. And, um, and it kind of went from there and I, it was not a straight road. Um, the book was, uh, I probably started five or six years ago and it, looks very little like the original version since I had so much to learn about point of view and how to write in characters and drop clues that aren't too obvious, but that are obvious enough and what level of medical terminology to use and um, lots of writing and rewriting and taking classes and hiring people to read it and tell me what to fix and um, lots of rejection from um, different agents and Finally, I actually met a publisher who was a former physician, and she was willing to read it, even though I didn't have an agent. And, uh, and so I got really lucky there. Wow. Okay. And I want to go through some of that in detail, because I think this is stuff people don't really know about, and it's really interesting. But let me go back, because this might be a good time to just kind of give folks, and we don't want to give too much away, obviously, because people probably will want to read this. But what can, what can you give us a little summary of the book for, you know, people who, who a, you know, might be interested in, in reading it and also so we can frame our discussion. Yeah. So Kate Downey is a young anesthesiologist at a university that is absolutely not university of Florida, but just happens to be located very nearby. Um, and um, she sort of stumbles on the fact that some of her older patients having minor surgery, G-tubes kind of stuff, are passing away afterwards, which when you think about it, we wouldn't necessarily know if somebody died two days after you put a G-tube in them. If they go home, it's not something we, do, we don't follow up patients two days later. Right. And so she discovers this just by serendipity. 
and is curious about it. And the surgeon is less than friendly about it. So he's sort of a mishmash of all the unfriendly surgeons that I worked with, which certainly don't exist anymore, but they used I've to. never met one, but, uh, but no. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then her investigation into this is somewhat thwarted by various people who are less than interested in her bringing shame upon her medical center. And, um, and so she's helped by some other characters who are just sort of fun, a medical student. And her aunt is actually modeled after my mentor's aunt that he wanted to put in our book. So she's just German woman who mixes up her English idioms and she's the comic relief of the book for the most part. Um, and so she, she narrows down this mercy killer for hire scheme. And then she's um, trying to find this person before he kills more people. And meanwhile, her husband in a, is in a persistent vegetative state from an IED explosion when he was overseas mm. with the military. And, and so it brings it sort of full circle back to her own situation. Wow. So sounds fascinating. And I, I want to thriller sort of um michael crichton ish yeah fantastic and and just for folks who may be wondering you know this has gotten quite good press already and i just want to we'll put some of this in the show notes but i just want to read for folks this is from lee child a quite well known and incredibly prolific author um who's been very successful who wrote this about your book he said this is terrific delicious suspense done that authenticity and a great main character in in dr kate downey we want to see more of her. So that's from Lee Child. And, you know, uh, again, there are, are more kind of really wonderful quotes about it. So clearly, not only have you managed a feat in of itself, which is to get a book published, but you've published a very successful and well-regarded book. So big congratulations on that. I want to go back to um, some of the process. So you had this kind of general idea. You were interested in end of life. Um, as you said, you had kind of thought about this. You knew you wanted to do something around that. And obviously, it made sense to choose a main character who was a anesthesiologist because that's what you do. And so, as you said, you kind of knew that setting and, and could write that character. Let's talk a little bit more about that main character. Um, did you, and you may you feel free to decline to answer it, but did you model her? I mean, do, as you were imagining the story, were you thinking she was you or was it just a, a female anesthesiologist, but not necessarily you? I didn't want her to be me, but it, they say, write what you know, when you first start out. And so the more I thought about it, she really was me 20 years ago when I had first started in anesthesia. Um, but over time she evolved to be quite different from me. In fact, I did my first book club two nights ago. And one of my friends who's known me for 25 years, she said, I never even pictured you as Kate, whereas other people go, oh, yeah, of course I pictured you. So I think she was very much modeled after me, but quickly became smarter and um, more resilient than I think I could ever be. Um, yeah, so so I don't think you can help, at least as a beginning author, making your characters a lot like people, you know. Um, sure. And yeah, she was she started out like me, but she's she's cooler. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's got to be one of the nice things about writing is that you can make you can make make her as cool as you want, right? You can make her the the idealized version of 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 you if you want. So, uh, so and she you was do, all in. But then you're yeah. Go then ahead. you're told not to. You're told that yeah. every character needs to have flaws. If they're too perfect, they're they're cardboard, and nobody wants to get to know them. Absolutely. And d did you ever run into situations where, you know, I could imagine? I mean, let's 
talk about an extreme. If, if someone wrote a novel where the main character was a, you know, a, a thief or a murderer that you might have people think, oh, my God, you know, is that or are, is she writing about things that she's done? Uh, right. Obviously, it wouldn't be. But do you ever have people who you think, like, look at you differently or, or who, who misunderstand you because they're assuming? And again, the, the book was only recently published. So maybe this is something you might come across. But I just wonder if you think people will who don't know you well will assume you are this character and will treat you that way. Um, this character, it would be great because she's wonderful, but, um, future books, that's worrisome. I go to a meeting every year called Thriller Fest, which is in New York City, and it's all the really famous thriller writers and then all of us fans who go to meet them and hear them talk about their process. And, um, Karen Slaughter, who writes these extremely violent, um, books is just hilarious. She's one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. And uh, she was interviewing Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl. Yeah. And and Gillian said, yeah, I had my mom read it. And she called me and she said, is everything OK? <laughs> <laughs> so so you're right. People start to go, hmm, what is wrong with you that you can come up with these ugly scenarios? I totally I can totally see that. But um, at least to start, you've written someone who, if they mistake her for you, that's a good thing. So right. what about the other characters? Yeah, you mentioned there's a medical student. Did you model that off a medical student who you knew at some point in your career? Or was this kind of like a, you know, a, a stereotypical medical student? Yeah, she's pretty much a mishmash of many medical students that I've mentored and worked with. Um, and I tried to bring in little things like, gee, there's not much exposure to anesthesia. So she originally picks family practice and then she finally does an anesthesia rotation and says, oh my gosh, I love this, right? Which I've seen mm -hmm. innumerable times from medical students. Absolutely. And um, her main person who's who she's working with is a man with, you know, now people are saying, oh, I want them to get together in the next book. And um, but she's married in this book, even though her husband's brain dead. And so my husband keeps saying, great, you make me brain dead. And you're going <laughs> to cheat on me. <laughs> it's not you. Um, so so a lot of the people are modeled after people, but I tried really hard to make them all mishmashes of people. So no one would specifically identify themselves other than certain events that happen, like my chairman at the time when that was my career, broke his hip, jumping a skateboard on a, or jumping a, a hose on a skateboard. And I have mm. that event in there. So he knows it's about him, as nice. does all the faculty who were at UF at the time. Um, but other things about him are much more like one of the other chairmen that we had after him. So, so yeah, they're all combinations. And with something like that, that's a great example. So this is an actual real life event that will you know, tie that character to a person that not only you, but others will recognize when you're going to do that. Do you get permission from that person or not? I, I, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of that. Yeah, I had to look that up and ask people about it. And they said in general to try to avoid real places where bad things are going to happen. But if they're just going to go to a restaurant, it's fine to use the real restaurant and the restaurant might even like it because people would go, Oh, look, there's that restaurant. Right. Um, when it comes to people, if you're not maligning them, then you can use real people without their permission, um, recognizing that if they feel like you've presented them in a bad light, they could sue you over it. Um, but then you ha they would have to prove that it caused them damages. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to go there. So I'm just not going to use any real right. people. Although I got a, a message on LinkedIn that I had inadvertently used a real person's name who is also a nurse anesthetist. <laughs> and he was not happy about the fact that I'd 
um, used his name. But and initially I tried to Google all the names I was going to use, but some of them are just common names and you're just going to you're going to run across that. Yeah. So, okay. so you you can certainly you can request ask permission. Don't have to as long as it's not kind of uh, maligning someone. All right. And then let's talk about names. I've always thought that would be so hard to come up with a name for a character in a book. How, I mean, so tell us, how did you come up with um, Kate Downey as a name? And then, you know, just in general, how do you come up with names? Do you just, is it the same as naming a baby? Like you look through a book and decide what you like? I actually bought a baby naming book so that I could pick, and it's got like the most popular names for each decade. So that when I pick a mm. character who's 70 years old, I can go to that decade and pick uh. a name that's appropriate to that decade. Cause you don't want to call them Ryan if they're yep. 75, but um I find it extremely difficult. And the other thing that's difficult is you're told not to use names that have the same first sound because readers will get them confused. So then you need a library of all the first sounds of all the character names you've used to make sure mm. you don't have Mr. Smith and Mr. Sorensen and Mr. <laughs> and um, I've had to change so many names because of that. So it is not a skill of mine. I tend to, if it's a foreign person or a person with a certain career, just for fun, I'll look up a foreign name for that career, you know, that that word translated into a different language. And then if it works, I'll use that. Mm. Um, but it is not one of my strengths. Okay. Um, Downey happens to be the name of a good friend of mine. And a couple of times I used friends. People will ask, oh, please put your, my name in your book. And they don't care whether it's a good guy or a bad guy. They just want their name in the book. So I'll, I'll do that when I can. My brother-in-law wants me to. And I said, I can't really use Yuliano as a character. That won't work. <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> Interesting. And it, I wouldn't have thought of it, but but I completely agree with what you said about difficulty. You know, if you have like a Kate and a Karen and a, you know, in a book that are in any way similar, it's very hard, at least until you get to know them really well to differentiate. So that I, I'd never heard that as a tip, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. So, so you have this idea, you, you know, you have this character in your head, that's kind of modeled after you as a young um, anesthesiologist and you have this interest. Okay. So you've never done any formal training, what did you do? Did you write a, a first kind of manuscript? And th- you mentioned you did some classes and stuff, but did you start with like getting a manuscript done and then go to classes? Or did you say, okay, I have this interest, but I don't really know how to make it into a manuscript. So I'm going to take some courses. What was the process? Well, I started by sitting down and going, cool, I'm going to write a book. And I looked at the blank screen and I typed and I deleted and I typed and I deleted and I went, I have no idea how to do this. Mm. Um, and so I went on Amazon thinking, oh, there's probably three or four writing books. I'll just get one. Well, there's thousands of writing books. Um, And so I bought one on plotting that had good reviews. And and it was very specific about, you know, do this first, figure out what your theme is, figure out who your main characters are. Um, and, And so I went through that almost completely. Um, And that helped me figure out how to write a plot. And then I started writing and realized that I didn't really understand how point of view worked about who was telling the story and how they would describe something. And, and so I would start and stop and, oh, I need to look that up. And, and it wasn't just Googling it and reading a couple lines. It actually required some, some reading. So, um, so it took a very long time to get the first draft down. And, um, and I was very proud of it and it won an award. And then I um, What kind started- of award? Did you enter it in a contest or? 
I did a contest at a, just a small writing association contest in uh, Washington. And I was very excited and, oh, great, this is my new career and I'm going to excel at it. And then I pitched to a bunch of agents and they sort of looked at me cross-eyed. Um, actually, one funny story. I pitched to an agent and I said, so it's about this anesthesiologist and she's in the operating room and she's working with a CRNA. And he goes, what's a CRNA? And I said, oh, it's a nurse anesthetist. We have this model where the those don't exist. <laughs> um, they do actually. And this is what I do for a living. And he goes, rewrite it and bring it to me when you get rid of that fictional, fictitious person. I went, I don't think I want to be part of your yeah. practice. That so, is wild. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Um, but so then I, I had it in multiple points of view. So each different character talked during their chapter and realized that that probably wasn't best for me. So I rewrote the whole thing from just Kate Downey's point of view. Um, and it's amazing how that changes things. You don't think about it, but all of a sudden, anything that happens out of her view, she doesn't know anything about. So then you have to figure out how she's going to find out about these things mm -hmm. without a boring dialogue where someone's telling her about it. And it's a, it, it's a whole different world. You know, you go into anesthesia, people who don't know anesthesia think, Oh gosh, you just put people to sleep and wake them up. No big deal. And then when you get into it, you realize there's thousands of layers underneath all of that. And the same thing happened with writing. I don't know why I thought it would be very simple, but, but it similarly has tons of layers and it changes the way you read. Once mm -hmm. you know a little bit more about the nuts and bolts, all of a sudden reading is, is a little bit different because you're analyzing how they did accomplished what they did. Yeah. So I want to go back to point of view for a second. I, I'm digging deep back to high school English, but I'm remembering that maybe your, you know, authors choose between, uh, like you said, having one, as you ended up with having just one person who's telling the story and then you have to, you know, things outside their their knowledge they don't know about until they hear about them from someone. And then you can have like the omniscient narrator, right? Who knows everything. And I, you know, I always thought, well, that's gotta be the easiest because you can just say whatever you want, right? Cause the omniscient God-like narrator knows everything. So uh, I guess you have to pick one. And as you said, you started, it sounds like not quite with that omniscient narrator, but with a different person in each chapter um, and then ended up with Kate. And, you, and that was that, as you said, that was kind of just what felt easiest and most comfortable to you was having her tell the whole thing. It was advised to me that, so they, they talk about deep point of view, which is um, the person reading it is sort of within the head of the person telling the story. And, and so you can bring in a lot more emotion and which I stink at writing, but I'm trying to learn. Um, and, and, uh, it's a lot more like they're right there in the scene instead of watching it on television. And, um, and I enjoy books written like that. So I thought that was how I wanted to write it. The omniscient point of view is very sort of 19th century kind of thing. And, and apparently those books don't sell anymore. I mean, mm. classics do, but that's not a way to write now. Everything is in what's called close third person, which is you're always on the shoulder of one or another character or first person. Um, but then you'll find books that break all the rules and they multi-million sellers. So it's, yeah. it's a, a lot of ways to skin a cat. Yeah. So it is, um, how about dialogue? I always feel like dialogue is one of those things that, you know, you hear discussed and certainly uh, can either be done incredibly well or really poorly. Um, I don't know if that was a challenge for you. And how did you decide 
what, you know, so, so let's say something happens outside of Kate's knowledge, right? So she's got to learn about it somehow if the reader is going to know about it. So you could either kind of have, you know, I guess you could either write, uh, you know, Dan uh, said to Kate and then just like write everything that he said, but not without, or you could literally have a conversation that you're writing between Dan and Kate. Um, And I I have no idea if Dan's a character in your book. I just made that name up, but, uh, (laughs) but for Kate, right. So is how, how was that? Did that come naturally to you or did you have to learn how to write dialogue? The answer to that question, when we come right back, stay with us. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Okay, we're back and talking about dialogue. I had to learn somewhat, but dialogue, for some reason, came fairly natural to me. The place I have a challenge is making sure the characters sound different, that their dialogue is, you know, ideally you wouldn't have to specify who's talking that you could tell from the way they talk without using slang or things where you have to try and figure out what the words are. Um, And that I find very challenging. I think all my characters sort of sound like Kate, um, except for Aunt Erm, who doesn't use any contractions. And so that's Uh, a little bit easier. But I try to hear their voice in my head and the way they would phrase things. Um, but that's, that's something I'm still learning how to do. Um, but I, so there's exposition, which is just like you said, Dan told her X, Y, and Z, and then there's the dialogue. And I much prefer to put it in dialogue. The problem is you want to not just have a ton of dialogue. You want them doing something while they're talking so that occasionally they can say, you know, and then he cleaned the sink or whatever. But ideally that's X, that's, um, those are called dialogue tags that they are, characterizing the character at the same time. So if he's a Mm -hmm. surfer, he's, you know, fixing his surfboard while he's talking or whatever. So it's fun to try and come up with those things for them to be doing. And uh, it's just, it's just neat that there's so many options and there's nothing scripted and you have to make it up from scratch and you could go any of a million ways. Um, Then it's your own world, which is really freeing. Yeah. And how much of, uh, the world of, of Kate, you know, Kate's world. And it, I get it that it's not like a fantasy novel. So you didn't, you weren't inventing a new world, but how much of her, you know, environment, her friends, her own personality, though, that was modeled after you. And, and how much of each character did you kind of design beforehand versus it developed as you went? You know, I've, I've, I've heard that some, some authors will, actually write entire backgrounds for each character before they start writing the story. You know, who their parents were, who their great-grandparents were, where they were from originally. Not even if they're going to use all that stuff, but just so they have this person who's like a real person to them who they then can write into their novel and others maybe the characters develop as they go. I don't know if you did one of those approaches or what you thought. I started because that book I was using said to do that. I started writing a character sketch. It's things like what colors their hair, where were they born, how they do in school, Um, And I got super bored super fast. Um, So I ended up just sort of starting the book and then going back and characterizing them sort of later. And then when I get stuck, I uh, somebody told me to do this and it works great for me is I start with just a blank piece of paper and a pen. It's this thing that writes and it has ink (laughs) in it Um, and, and having them write a letter about their life. And, uh, and it's so fun how, crazy things come to mind that in their history. And I have a big whiteboard that I do a mind map of how they relate to these different characters. And 
I keep erasing it and then wishing I could undelete because I forget that you can't undelete on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I have a million photographs of my whiteboard over time. But it's um, eventually they get uh, much more fleshed out, but I don't flesh them out at the very beginning. And I never actually, I was talking to this book club and I said, how do you picture Kate? And they were like, well, we picture you. But in the book, I never say what color her hair is. I don't say what kind of clothes she wears other than scrubs and um, running clothes. So it's, it's, I don't like to read descriptions. So I don't tend to write descriptions and the buildings are probably all very, I picture my hospital, but I hope there's enough there for people to picture the space if they've never been there. Sure. Interesting. Okay. So, all right. So you um, bought this book on how to write, you sketched out a plot, you wrote a version of the manuscript, you submitted it to this contest you won, which was exciting. And then you started looking for an agent. And what does that mean? Do you email out your entire manuscript to like agents that you, like, do you Google book agent? Tell us a little bit about that process. And, and also why do you start with an agent? I think most people would think if you have a manuscript, you send it to publishers. So tell us a little bit about that. So there's kind of three routes to publication. One is you just self-publish. You just figure out how to format it so that Amazon will take it and you put it on Amazon and you put a price on it and you cross your fingers. Um, and that's self-publishing and it's, it's a great route, but there's, thousands and thousands of books published that way every single day. Mm. So um, it's a very low bar for quality. And so it makes it a lot harder because people are going to be skeptical. Um, And then there's, well, there are others. There's one where you can pay somebody to publish it for you, but that's pretty frowned upon. And then there's some publishers who will take submissions directly from authors. Those are small presses. And there's a little bit more quality control there because they've got some skin in the game. And then there's the big five. It's down to five now from about 14, 10 years ago um, of the major publishers. And they will only take agented manuscripts. So Mm. you have to find somebody who loves your work enough to shop it around to those big publishers. And then the bar to get an agent is it's going to have to be a quality work. And so what you do is there's places to find out who the agents are, who rep are interested in the kinds of books you write, whether it's romance or horror or thrillers. And then you, they each have a different way that you query them and you send them a letter, a cover letter saying, here's what I've written. Here's how long it is. Here's my credentials. And then they write you back maybe and say, I'm interested. Please send me 50 pages or please send me the whole thing all done electronically. And then maybe they reply, and all of this takes months and months and months. You know, you get so excited, you send out 50 queries, and six weeks later, you've heard back from five of them, and they're all rejections, but all the rest of them are still pending, and you check your email a thousand times a day, and it's very heartbreaking. Um, And Mm -hmm. some of them you just never hear from, and some you do, and some you get asked for fulls, and they may or may not read it. Um, so it's a it's a very challenging world and it's so different. In anesthesia, I felt like if I work hard enough, I can excel. If I work hard enough on my research, eventually something's going to work and I can publish it. And eventually I'll find some journal that's going to publish my article. And, and it's not that way with writing. You could do all this and never get anybody interested in it. You can self-publish, but um, so it's it's a different environment. And then the other thing you can do is go to these meetings, like I mentioned, Thriller Fest or the One Out West, And they'll have agents there and you actually sit in front of them and it's like a speed dating thing. You sit there, you pitch your book with like a one minute 
here's what my book's about. And they ask you some questions. And if they're interested, they'll give you a card that says, please send me 50 pages. And if they're not, then they just say, sorry. Mm. And that's a better way because you get to the top of the slush pile because they've already met you. Um, but these writing conferences are not cheap. And I wonder how people who don't have resources from being a, a, a otherwise employed can afford to go to them because uh, they they aren't uh, inexpensive. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you sent your cover letter with whatever else they wanted to a variety of agents and um, any memory of exactly how many do you, was it? Probably close to 50 over the years. Five Oh, five Oh. Wow. Yep. Okay. 50 and, agents. And several of them asked for a full for the whole novel and okay. none of them went from there. They all said, now, this was different versions of it. So some said, you know, your writing's not clear enough yet. And I rewrote it. And then, you know, the next pile, some of them said, oh, I really like it, but it's too dark or it's not what I'm looking for. Or nobody wants to read about medical stuff. Is mm. I got that. I'm like, there's like five television shows all about medical stuff yeah. that do incredibly well. How can you say no one wants to read it? Um, and, uh, and then eventually I was um, going to one of the big meetings and they asked if anybody wanted to be a moderator for a panel. And I wrote and said, I would love to moderate a panel on medical issues in fiction. And I got to do it. And then that's where I met this publisher was she was one of the panelists because she's also written several books. She's a family practitioner. Gotcha. Okay. So I, first of all, this reminds me a little of JK Rowling's story, which I don't remember the exact details, but I think she sent her you know, first, the first manuscript of the first Harry Potter book to, to at least 25, if not more publishers and more, got rejected yes. by, by all, clearly all but one. They all said, nobody wants to read about a wizard. Actually, they told that story at one of our meetings. They said that the, the guy at Little Brown took it home and asked his 13 year old to read it. And his 13 year old said, you have got to publish this. Yep. And, um, and then she went from there. Yes, we all know what happened next. So, okay. So amazingly, 50 agents over time. Um, nobody went all the way to taking you on. Uh, you said you made various revisions. Was it, were they revisions that came from agents saying, you know, giving you specific things to do? Or, or you mentioned at some point you hired people to help, you know, as editors. T talk a little about that. How did you make revisions? How, what, what did you change and why and who was helping you? The vast majority of things you get from agents is a form letter that says, this is not what I want. This is very subjective. Keep trying. Good luck. They're not at all specific to yeah. so you. So that's not helpful. No. Occasionally you'll get one that says, you know, I really like your character, but I didn't like this. Um, but for the most part, um, you can go on different websites and find what's called beta readers. So these are people that just read books and then they write sort of a report where they say, I really like this. I didn't like that. I got lost here. They're all of different quality. Um, and you so pay for, them? I paid them. Yeah. So for my books, about 80,000 words and for hundred, two hundred $200, you can get somebody to read it and give you a 15 page review of what they think about your book. So it's, um, it's very cost effective. And so if you get three of them and two of them have the same complaint, you can go, oh, I need to fix that. Yeah. Um, very often you'll have three of them with three different opinions about the same sentence. And that's a little more challenging. Yeah. Um, 80,000 words is about, book. sorry, 80,000 words is about how many pages? In a, about 300 pages. 300. Okay. 
All right, sorry, what were you saying? 50 words a page about Fatal Intents, 321 pages. Um, yeah, romance books are shorter and fantasy books are longer. And these are all things you have to learn. What's my target? How long should yeah, this book yeah, be? Yeah, yeah, um, So mostly it was beta readers and then also people get critique partners. So you get another writer who preferably is about at your same level and you each exchange chapters and tell each other what you like and what you don't like. I haven't been as fortunate in that way of finding um, compatible critique partners, but um, that the beta readers have been very, very helpful. And then I also, for a different novel that I've written, hired an editor, which is not inexpensive. Um, and she gave me ideas to go back and fix this novel. And, um, and I think it's an infinitely better book than it was five years ago. Sure. And I think I know more about writing, but as I write the sequel, it's similarly challenging, um, going through it, but it's still fun. I, I, yeah, I imagine. So, okay. You, you serendipitously, you're at on this panel and you meet this publisher and uh, she's interested in, in the book. So she takes it, reads it and says, I want to publish it or, you know, what, yep. what's that process? She did. Okay. She, uh, I sent it to her and she wrote me an email and said, we love it. We'd like to work with you. Um, when we set up a phone call, it was actually two days after I got my knee replaced. I was on the phone with this publisher and um, being a smaller press, they don't have an army of editors and things. And so it was pretty much the book I submitted. There were a few changes that they wanted. It was very minimal. Whereas if you go with a big house, they're going to have you rewrite from what I hear, depending on who you are and somebody junior like me, they would probably want me to rewrite 20% of the book. Mm. Um which would be challenging because it's your baby and Mm -hmm. may disagree with what they want you to fix. Um, And then that was in January of 2020. And it was March of 2021 when it was published. So that's from a publisher. So what happened in there? Well, um, they only publish one or two books a month. And so that was just the next opening for their publication, but it does take months. So for um, getting the, cover you know they hired an artist and he came up with a cover and I didn't like it and then they redid it and that took a couple of months and then I had to solicit the blurbs those phrases on the on the back cover from authors that I'd met and that took months because you've got to email them they've got to agree to do it then you have to wait until what's called the ARC the advanced reader copy so they publish a paperback of the book that's not been fully line edited sent out well in advance so that reviewers can read it and start reviewing it. And so that those went out in May and then the cover was finished in November. So they had to have the blurbs back by November in order for yeah. them to get on the cover. Um, and then publicity, advanced public. I mean, there's this whole business. They send those books out to hundreds of people around the country so that they'll read it and write a review that will be available by the, by launch day. Mm. So that it can get early press. And then um, it's really fascinating how much there is to it. And I don't know how somebody who self-publishes, you know, they don't have access to to all these bookstagrammers, which I'd never heard of. People on Instagram who just say, hey, I read this great book. (laughs) I I would never could have imagined all this that you are talking about. Um, So, okay, huge, huge amount that goes into it. How about the title? Was that your original title or did that undergo changes? That's a funny story. I called it Do No Harm. I thought that was an awesome title. That title came to me very early in the process. Mm. 
And I called it do no harm. Every one of my files is DNH version 72. Yeah. Um, and when I, one of the first things that I said at our first meeting with the publisher was that title won't work. And I said, why? And they yeah. said, because there's 12 books named do no harm. And there's a movie uh, called do no harm. And mm. no. <laughs> and so they said, think about it and get back to us. And um and I ended up just writing down, a, I went through bunches of books and wrote down words from their titles. And then I made a sheet with one word on one sheet and another word on another sheet. And then I slid them next to each other, putting the words together. And hmm. um, we came up with about 10 that way. And Fatal Intent was one of them. And then that was my favorite. And they thankfully agreed to it. Um, but I had to prove to them that it wasn't the name of multiple other books. There actually yeah. are three or four other books, but um there's a finite number of words you can use. You that's know? right. That's right. There's only so many words. I like do no harm, but I, but I get that if there's a lot of other ones named that. Okay. Interesting. So you ended up with the title uh, and then this whole process. And then in March, it actually came out. And what does that look like? Does coming out mean that it is in bookstores available on Amazon, all of the above? All of the above. Yeah. So it shows up on Amazon for pre-orders um, two or three months beforehand. And um, the publisher decides how it's going to launch and they set the price point. And so they said it's going to come out in hardcover and ebook and audiobook. And so those all came out. And now the paperback doesn't come out for a whole nother year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had submitted it to some things. And so we were fortunate to get picked by, a, it's called BookBub, which is just a, a group that sends out book deals, they chose it for a book deal. And so that really helped because they, if you get a book bub deal, you have to sell it for $1.99. So it helps a lot when you're a brand new author for people to go, oh, it's only two bucks. Oh, yeah. I'm willing to put out, I'm willing to shell out $2, but not right. $27, right? Um, and so it was a lot of, um, the day it, it launches, you know, you're supposed to be going on book tours, but of course with covid there's no book tours, which is probably good because I'm not sure I would really thrive in that environment. Um, and so I did a virtual launch where people were on Zoom and it was done at a bookstore. And we just talked about how sort of like this, how I wrote the book. Um, but otherwise, now that it's been out a month, it's sort of calming down. I've got a few other podcasts to do and a few. They do these interviews, blog interviews, where they just send you questions and you type out your answers and then they post it. And mm. it always seems like I had a conversation with so-and-so. No, you didn't. You sent me questions. Right, right. Interesting. Them. Okay. So now the um, the audiobook I'm curious about, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, uh, love them, is... Uh, did you, first of all, did you read it yourself? And if not, did you have any say over who the reader was? So it's really interesting. In the original contract, they said, we will decide whether to do an audiobook. And when I had it reviewed by an attorney, I told him an audiobook's really important to me because that's how I get the most of my reading done. Yeah. And, and so we added a phrase that said, if you don't do an audiobook within 18 months, I get to do it. And it wasn't going to be me. I was going to hire someone to do it. Sure. And so... After it had been out for a month and the audio, I, I emailed them and said, you know, what's the status of the audiobook?" And they said, oh, it's almost done. It's like, what? Whoa. I, I assumed I would have a voice. I had already started paying attention to who read the books I was reading to see who yeah. I wanted. And they'd already hired somebody and done the whole thing. So 
it's good. It's very good. I've only listened to snippets of it, but my husband doesn't read it all. And he, he listened to it and he liked it. So, um, so no, I didn't have any voice in that. And interestingly, I listened to some podcasts about how to do audiobooks, and they say that that's not uncommon that the, that the author has no say. And that if you have like weird names, they might mispronounce them and you can't fix it, which would be very sad. Fortunately, none of mine are super bizarre names, but I'm curious whether she got propofol and those kinds of things pronounced right. One of these days I have to listen to it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, that is so interesting. And I, I would think, you know, I bet that if you, um, as I'm sure you will become a famous author and, and millions of copies sold at some point, they'll say to you, you get to decide, right? Like it, like when Malcolm Gladwell reads his own or when, you know, uh, Michelle Obama reads her own, I think they got to make that decision. Yeah. Nonfiction. Very often the, the author reads it themselves. And for the audiobooks, some of them are just like they've got sound effects and all sorts of stuff. Mine, mine doesn't have that. And, and in a series, you tend to want the same voice for the whole yeah. series, yeah. especially if they do voices for the characters. I don't know if you ever listened to Harry Potter yeah. audiobooks, but they're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. When um, they do those, you know, uh, voices, same with the Game of Thrones books. I listen to those on audiobook and whoever I don't know who the, the reader was, but oh, the, the voices were fantastic. Yeah, especially when they've got like foreign voices, which I struggle to pronounce the French words. Like I listen to Louise Penny, who writes these things sent in, in Quebec. And um, it's just, I would love to have that kind of voice. I'd love to have that voice, but I'd love to have that voice read my book. Totally. Um, well, that is fantastic. Okay, so... Uh, the book is out. It's called Fatal Intent, um, as we just heard, available on Amazon uh, at your local bookstore um, and uh, sounds fantastic. I will definitely be listening to it. I'll be looking for the audiobook, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, let's talk briefly about uh, we talked about kind of how you decided to portray your anesthesiologist character, which was really modeled after you. And clearly, you know a lot about that character, both from from yourself and just being around anesthesiologists. Tell me a little bit about your understanding, what you've learned about how anesthesiologists are portrayed in general in popular culture and in, 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 uh, in fiction in particular. Not well. Um, I remember I was still in residency, I think, and I was watching ER. ER had just started. This is how old I am. And um, somebody was in labor in the ER, and uh, the only thing they had for an anesthesiologist was somebody with a very foreign accent saying, I'm here to place your epidural. And that's it. Later, she needs general anesthesia. It's done by the ER staff. Everything <laughs> is done by the ER staff. Um, there's a few, like apparently the very early MASH movie had an anesthesiologist in it um, with some role that wasn't negative. Um, and there's a few books like uh, Carol Casella, who's a pediatric anesthesiologist out in Washington, wrote a really great book called Oxygen, which is focused on an anesthesiologist who's um, in the aftermath of a drug error that that uh, hurts a child. And, and mostly it's about her turmoil, but it does portray what we do as a, an important part of the medical community. Um, but a lot of people might have seen the uh, Grey's Anatomy where the anesthesiologist I think there's a patient with a bomb in his belly or something, and the anesthesiologist is there handbagging them for reasons that escape me. And he hands off to a nurse and says, I've got kids, I'm leaving. And uh. <laughs> after that, the ASA had a nice statement about, yeah, that would never happen. Yeah. Um, but I think 
I think even our colleagues don't really understand what we do. Um, I think most of them know that when they get into trouble, they want us there, um, but they don't necessarily understand what we do. And I, I hope that we try really hard. I think my OB colleagues understand because I go to rounds and I point out, here's some issues that we need to think about. And when you get in private practice, you need to let your anesthesiologist know that this person has scar tissue or whatever. Um, but even so, the public still is, is a little bit mystified by the whole thing because we're not incredibly visible. We greet them at the beginning and pretty quickly give them Versed and we see them afterwards and they vaguely remember that we were involved, but they don't really know what we're doing. So I, I think it's nice to have um, an anesthesiologist in a, in a positive light. Um, and, and just to, I didn't want to preach, but I wanted to throw in some of the things that um, that we think about. And I mentioned that we talked to the attending the night before for a period of time about the cases planning ahead and people who have reviewed the book have said, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that's, they actually talked about me the night before. Um, so sprinkling in those sorts of things, I think is fun. And then yeah, I, I love use, that. as a device, I used my medical student, which I do in real life as well, so that I can teach at a junior level, using terminology I would never use doctor to doctor, but I right. would use to a medical student to try to bring out things. Because to use those words, if I were conversing with a physician, would be contrived and any physician reading it would go, what? They would never right. talk like that. Right, right. No, I love that. What a neat way to do it. And I'm glad that you are are trying to put out some accurate information about what we do. It is funny. I mean, I remember a patient one time when I told them that I would be, you know, getting them off to sleep and taking close care of them while they were asleep and then waking them up at the end. They said, I, I didn't realize you you stay the whole time and then wake me up. I thought you just put me to sleep and then leave, uh, <laughs> you know, which is just astounding for us. But, you know, if, if this is how it's portrayed in TV, then why would they think anything else? So I'm right. glad we'll have an accurate representation out there. Thank you for doing that. I was, uh, when I was a medical student, I was on my anesthesia rotation and I was working with a, a colleague and uh, we went into a room and he was explaining the anesthesia and she said, How, what does it take to be, to do what you do? And he said, well, you know, after high school, you do four years of college, four years of medical school, four years of residency. And she goes, oh, you could be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, well, in fact, I am. That is great. Yep. That's about right. All right. Well, Tammy, this has been fantastic. Anything else you want to add before we move to our random recommendations segment? Um, the only thing is, even though we are all doctors and theoretically knowledgeable about end-of-life issues, if you have not yet got a living will and your family members don't have living wills, I strongly encourage you to do that. We all see these things, but we never really think it can happen to us. And I Highly recommend that everybody have that conversation with your parents and your loved ones and make sure you understand what they want and uh, that they understand what you want. Um, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, great advice. I give the same to everybody. And um, I think it's crucial to do that. Um, well, Tammy, thank you so much. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Uh, what do you have to recommend to the audience other than, of course, your book, which um, I think we all can agree people should check out? I would love that. Um, so my first one is a movie that I think everyone should watch. It's not um, highly popular, but you can find it. I think it's on Netflix. It's called The Ultimate Gift. And it's um, it's got some stars in it. And of course, I can't name any of them. But it's about a young man who was a child of privilege who 
um, had some bad things happen to him and is now living sort of a hedonist life. And his grandfather posthumously guides him back to recognizing what's important in life. And it is just a phenomenal movie um, that everybody should watch with their with their kids, maybe not with super little kids. Um, but I think it will sort of reset your your um, focus of, of priorities. Um, and then two books. One is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. The first half of it is about his experience in Auschwitz. He was a physician um, who ended up as a prisoner in Auschwitz, but then he uh, developed a, something called logotherapy, which is his, he went back to school and became a psychiatrist. And it's about um, finding meaning in life um, and I reread the second half of it every couple of years because it's just a really great view of of how to keep your life on track. You can see I have a, a theme here. Um, and the other book that I just read, it just came out, is called Think Again by Adam Grant. And it is um, about he's a, a social scientist, something like that, at a at an Ivy League school. And he's done a bunch of research on how we make decisions and how we think about things and how we keep our minds open to changing our opinions when the facts come to light that are different than what we thought they were. And especially in the current climate, I think it's a, a very important book for, for everybody to read. I wish we could make it sort of required reading because um, it really is good about um, not being so set in your opinions that you're not willing to listen to opposing views. Love it. That sounds fantastic. Definitely. We'll check those out. Thank you. I'm going to shout out a, a new podcast by Anesthesiology News. Yeah, people may remember they've done a, a podcast now for a few years called The Etherist, but this is a new one they call Ask the Experts, and it's very cool. Actually, they've taken uh, anesthesiologists uh, from around the country who are well known for one thing or another and interviewed them and just kind of asked for audience questions beforehand. And so done a bunch of interesting question and answer with these anesthesiologists from around the country. There's a recent episode that I'm going to specifically recommend with Amy Pearson, who's a wonderful anesthesiologist who was very involved as the president of the um, women in anesthesiology group and is still very involved. And so a lot of the questions have to do with kind of busting some of the myths of um, why there's a pay gap and, you know, what we should be doing to help foster and support our um, women in anesthesiology. So I think it's, it's really well done. Amy does a fantastic job and the podcast in general, I think is, is great. So check that out. Anesthesiology News, ask the experts and we'll put a link in the show notes to the three ones that you recommended, Tammy, and to that as well. Uh, well, this has just been fantastic. Thank you so much. I hope the book is a huge success. I'm sure it will be. I look forward to reading it or listening to it and uh, wish you all the best. Good. Thank you very much. And keep doing what you're doing. Our residents love it. Awesome. Thanks, Tammy. All right. That was awesome. I just thought that was so interesting and so impressive that she was able to get this book published and be an anesthesiologist all at the same time. If you have comments, go to the website, ACRAC.com. Tell us what you thought. If you have written a book of your own, let us know. Put the link in the show notes. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. You can go to Venmo and look for Jay Walpaw. You can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC, and you can do that in any way that you'd like. We really appreciate, obviously, any donations that you make. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. 
You can find us on Twitter. We're at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpaw. You can also find us on Facebook at the ACRAC Facebook page. Thanks so much to everyone who has been part of those conversations. Huge thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who is our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who helps out with the show. They are a fantastic team. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Tammy Uliano, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.